Welcome to the Royal Christian Centre Sermon Podcast. It's good to be gathered together as a church this morning. Uh, We recognise as a church that we uh, sometimes we gather together, but the vast majority of the time we're a lot more scattered, aren't we? in various places, uh, living the lives that God has given to us. And uh, we're working, we're studying, we're uh, in family life, we're being neighbours, we're being whatever we are in life. And uh, it's good to invite God into every area of our lives. And to know that as we go, uh, we have the possibility to go together. Um, I haven't mentioned them for a while, so I'm going to mention them today. As we go together within our church, we encourage absolutely everybody to be a part of, well, one of two things really. We for a long time have had uh, our small groups meeting in various homes around the world. We call them Transform Labs, opportunity to explore uh, the Word of God and to partner with the Spirit of God, to pray with one another, serve one another, uh, go with one another. Uh, we've recently started to see some of those labs kind of, tra- kind of morph and change and some amalgamate and some of them change in different ways to form, transform communities, just slightly larger groupings of people that don't just want to do all of those wonderful things that the labs do, but they've said, we have a shared heart for mission. We believe that God has laid one particular thing, a neighborhood, a network, a need on our hearts. And we want to join together and get about seeing God's glory, seeing God's kingdom come uh, through that shared mission. So if you're not yet part of a Transform Lab or a Transform community, can I invite you to be part of one? And you say, how do I do that, uh, Pastor Greg? Well, come and see me. At the close of our service, I'm going to be right down here at the front. You can come and chat with me. Go to our Start Lounge at the back. And uh, they will help you too. One announcement to do not so much with how we scatter as a church, but how we gather. And it's an announcement for something that's coming up in about a year's time. You've never had so much notice for a church announcement ever, (laughs) have you? Uh, But recently we announced that next September we're taking our church annual conference, Equip, on the road. And uh, that's more than I could have hoped for. That was exciting. Um, And we are going to have a church weekend, which we've not had for, well, by then it'll be 10 years, just slightly over. And uh, we're going to have a church weekend because we believe that God is leading us into a new season. There's lots of new exciting things happening in our church. And we want everybody to have the opportunity to be gathered, not just in one place, although it's a very beautiful place. If you've not yet picked up your flyer, it's Kef and Lee. There are some scattered about the place. I know lots of you got them last week. We're going to be gathered together, have a lot of fun together, but we're going to try and gather our hearts, our minds, our spirits and join together in seeking, seeing what God is doing. We have some incredible people who are going to come and serve us as a church, speak to us, enable us. It's going to be really good. This week, we're going to be getting out the details of how you can make your booking. And um, we've got a few early bird categories. Is anybody an early bird here today? I know I'm a night owl actually Greg well try try and resist that go with the early bird we've got some great uh, discounts and schemes for you to save Um, kids under the age of three go free and honestly I didn't wangle that just for Judah I promise Uh, there are are loads of great discounts we want you to know about them so we're going to make that available to you this week just pay attention make sure you get the best deals that you can 
and, uh, and book those days. It's the 21st to the 23rd of September next year. I don't see anybody reaching for their phones to punch that in. Come on, you people. You already done it. Okay, good. You've already done it. Super. Fantastic. Um, that is one announcement. Another quick one. In a couple of weeks' time, on the 15th of October, in the evening, we have our international celebration. Um, almost as excited about that as you are about the church weekend. Well, the same three people at any rate, but... Uh, International celebration. We do this twice a year to remind us of the joy of what our church is. People who are drawn literally from all over the globe, not by accident, but by design. So people don't normally design to come to Birkenhead. I don't know whether this is a shock to you. I, and I say that because I love Birkenhead more than any of you. Um, I, can, I think I can say that confidently. Um, I'm a bit weird that way. So there must be a reason that God has brought you here. Did you come and tell the truth? Yeah. There you were in Kenya and the Philippines and Ghana and Nigeria and Canada. You knew about Birkenhead. But <laughs> you were all over the place. You never heard of Birkenhead. Had you? No. But God brought you here. It's not accidental. It's God's design that we might be. I believe, just a little glimpse, just a little image, just a little sign to our town and our area of heaven. Yeah? Amen. Would you look at somebody near you? God, look at somebody, don't stop looking at me. Look at somebody, don't they look heavenly? Don't they look heavenly this morning? <laughs> if you're with your husband or your wife, you've got, you got to say yes. You've got to say yes. Um, we believe that God has brought us together for very clear reasons. We want to celebrate that. We celebrate our diversity, our unity. That's two Sundays from now. There's other things to announce, but uh, they're further off. Uh, so I'm not going to do that this morning. We're rather, we're going to plunge into the Word of God as we do in a moment or two when I, uh, when I shut up. There's no nice way of putting it. Um, we're going to come around a table of remembrance and uh, this morning, if I can just drop something into your head that will be for you. If you're not a Christian yet, if you're not a follower of God, if you don't know what it is to have given your life to God, know his love, changing you completely, then what I'm going to say now is probably the most important thing. So you have a, a complete license from me to not listen to anything else I say this morning, as long as you listen to this one thing. God loves you. And he gave his life for you. And you say, well, why would he do that? It seems an odd way to prove your love. It's a bit dramatic. It's a bit Romeo and Juliet, isn't it? The reason God did that is because you needed him to do that. See, the Bible teaches us super clearly that each and every person has gone their own way. That means not going God's way. What does it mean to go God's way? It means to know the fullness of life and life forevermore. What does it mean to go our own way? It means to break life, to break fellowship, friendship with God, and to know, in fact, destruction and death. And the Bible shows us really clearly that God wasn't happy with that. I imagine you wouldn't be happy with it either. No one likes destruction and death. God wasn't happy with that because he cares about you too much. He loves you too much. And so he said, you know what? I will die once for all. So that anybody, the Bible says, who believes in me should not know what it is to be separated from me for one moment longer. You place your trust in Jesus. 
you will know friendship with God from that moment on. You place your life in the hands of God, you will know the fullness of life from that moment on. So Jesus said, I will take all of their brokenness, I'll take all of their pain, I'll take all of their wrongdoing, I will pay the price for all of that so that they can be set free. Has anybody been set free by Jesus this morning, yeah? I think a lot of us have. I would say to you, and and again, this is your free pass to ignore everything else I say, but listen to this. If you've not yet placed your trust in Jesus, do so today. Try him out. All the people around you have tried Jesus out and they've not found him to be false. In fact, they found him to be better than they ever expected. If I can make it plain, you need Jesus, but when you trust in him, you'll find that you love Jesus too. And that's the joy of the Christian life. We're going to celebrate that uh, through an act of communion. We'll explain that later on. This morning, we're beginning in the Bible, looking at um, a passage of uh, Scripture, a passage of the Bible that you'll find in Exodus chapter 20. If you've got a Bible, you're welcome to go there, scroll there. It's going to come up on the screen as well. Uh, But we're going to be looking at um, some of the the foundational words, I would say, not just of the Bible, of our understanding of God, but foundational words for civilization, for human society, the Ten Commandments. I've never preached on them. Um, I think we rarely do. Uh, But they're relevant for today. They're relevant for now. Does anybody like Shakespeare? Does anybody like Shakespeare? You're like, I haven't read Shakespeare since I was in school. A few of you like Shakespeare. You know the, uh, the play Macbeth, don't you? The Scottish play, as they call it. Macbeth. Do you know what Macbeth was about? Loosely based on uh, real events. There was this man, a warrior, a noble man in Scotland, Macbeth. I was going to say the hero of the play, but he really isn't. And this man, he was an achiever. This guy would fight and he would always win. This guy would get stuff done. This guy was the kind of person that people look up to or that people want to be like. But something started to happen in this man's heart. And he started to think, well, do you know, I've done a lot and I've achieved a lot, but I always do it for somebody else. I always do it for the king. When do I get mine? When do I get my dues? When do people start to look at me like they look at the king? Actually, maybe I should be king. I'm younger than him. I'm better looking than him. I'm more stylish than him. I'm a better warrior than him. I'm better in every way than him. Shouldn't I get what's mine? And if you know the story, you'll know that he found himself once upon a time walking along a pathway where he probably shouldn't have been. And three weird sisters start to whispering, dropping little things in his ear, like, oh, yeah, 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 maybe, 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 maybe. He goes home and he chats with his wife, Lady Macbeth, and she says, oh, yeah, you know, you're onto something there. I think you're good-looking and better than the king. Maybe you should be. And they start to scheme and wile, and ultimately the story goes that Macbeth kills the king. I should have probably said at that point, plot spoiler, shouldn't I? (laughs) You were all going to go out and read it, weren't you? I've ruined it for you. Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) There begins 
the moment that he gets everything he thought he wanted in life, at exactly the same time, he gets a lot more besides. And his mind decays and his heart decays and his marriage decays. And all the people who looked at him and thought, you're a good guy, now start to think, maybe you're not a good guy. And even though they didn't know that he was the one who had done away with the king, everything starts to fall apart. One point in the play, Macbeth says, stars hide your fires. Let not light see my black and deep desires. Even Macbeth, and he was going pretty mad by this point, could recognize within his madness that it was the desires of a twisted heart which were blackly leading him and all those around him towards a tragic end. We are going to look at these uh, Ten Commandments. And we're looking at instructions given through Moses to the people of God as they started to be the people of God, to see what that really looked like. To have a moral law to enable them to flourish in the love of God. And you might say, well, that's all well and good, but Shakespeare, he's a bit old. And do you know these Ten Commandments? I don't know my history exactly, but I think they're even older. What on earth could they possibly have to say to me today? Are we making some funny noises this morning? It's just in my head. And you might also say, well, do you know, Greg, earlier on this year, you were going on and on and on about the Reformation too. 500 years since the Reformation. And I remember distinctly that you said, Pastor Greg, that it's only by grace that we are saved. So why, considering it's all very old and spoken to different people way back when, and why, considering that you said that it's all about grace, it's all about receiving the gift of God, why on earth should we bother looking at a law or a group of laws? And don't they all begin with thou shalt not as well? Now that can't possibly be good because nobody likes being told that they shall not do anything. If anybody speaks to you like that, you might think it's a bit odd. Nobody likes being told what not to do. And isn't that really not a very Christian thing anyway? Well, I wonder... Might we hear some of the words from one of the leading lights of the Reformation, Martin Luther? He said this, he said, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, self. Self. You see, I would say to you today, you don't need the grace of God, you don't need the gift of God, the love of God to save you from something that is outside, external to you. We are not damsels in distress who have been somehow imprisoned against our will in an ivory tower somewhere only to be saved by a knight in shining armour. We need the grace of God to save us from ourselves, to save us from the sense of self 
Shakespeare, he wrote Macbeth just a, a few short decades after Martin Luther had ushered in a spark, the Reformation. And in their own way, they were both recognizing that it is within us that there is a problem. We don't need a law to fix those other people who do stuff wrong. A law was given because God saw human hearts corrupted, corruptible, able to be full of deceit and brokenness and to go away from him. I I would go so far as to say that we need God's law to show us right from wrong. You know, we think that's just for kids, don't we? We think kids don't know the difference between right and wrong when they're really little and we have to show them the way. I'm not so sure it ever really changes. I think in the sight of God, well, we're all kids. We need help to show us what is right and what is wrong, to choose properly between them. We need God's law because we oftentimes tell ourselves our hearts are good. But Jesus said that no one was good, not completely, but God himself. When it comes down to it, as, as we look at the law of God, as we look at these 10 commandments, and you know there's an awful lot more that goes around it, but as we look at the law of God, my hope and my prayer is that we would look at it, maybe look at ourselves a little bit in the mirror, be honest, be a bit tough with yourself, and find that you need to throw yourself on the mercy of God, upon the grace of God, and that ultimately there is no hope for us without, without him and without his grace. The law can't save you, but it can show your need for a saviour. And for those who humbly place their faith your whole lives into God's hands, then the law powerfully begins to speak of the possibilities of new life, a life which is full and which is free and with the joy of flourishing as God intended for you. And so we come down to these 10 laws. I'm just going to read one of them this morning. It's found in verse 17 of Exodus chapter 20. And you're going to say, well, Pastor Greg, you've missed a few. But we're going to start at this end and we're going to work our way back. And I'll explain why in a moment. But in Exodus 20 in verse 17, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. A few of you are thinking, fantastic, my neighbors don't have servants, oxes, or donkeys. So <laughs> there's a whole lot of it that I don't need to worry about. I think we'll find in a moment or two that the Bible can speak to us still today. We're beginning with the 10th commandment. And the Bible here is speaking not just to behavior, but the Bible is speaking to the heart. Because on the outside, if we're honest about it, our lives might look just fine, like we're perfectly content. The Bible says that that to have contentment with godliness is great gain. And you know, to some extent, we can fake both on the outside, can't we? We can fake contentment. We can say, I'm absolutely happy with everything that I have in life. Well, on the inside, it's like a a storm of longing and want and disgruntlement with everything. We're like a a bit like a duck, really, aren't we, sometimes in our behavior? Everything seems all peaceful and serene on the surface. But ain't those little paddlers going ten to the dozen underneath? Yeah? 
And we can fake things. We can fake peace and fake contentment on the outside whilst being all at at, at disorder and discontent on the inside. You can fake godliness just the same. Can do things on the outside that make us look like we're right with God when on the inside we know we're not. This morning, as we start looking at this idea of, of coveting, what we're looking at is the human heart. And God gets really, really, really close in and really into how how we are living our lives. It's not just what's going on on the outside, what's said or what's done or how so, but it's what's going on on the inside. And that's where it gets really tricky. In the book of Jeremiah, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things. That's a rather blunt way of putting it, isn't it? You say, my heart? Yeah, the Bible says the heart, everybody's heart. It's unknowable, it's untamable. It can't be grasped or or grappled with. It can't be actually put to good use except for God's help. You see, the Bible goes on to say that it is God who examines it. He examines it against his law, but he examines it because he wants to help you. God finds our hearts lacking. I'm full of good news, aren't I, this morning? God finds our hearts lacking, but he doesn't want to leave us there. God sees all the way through all of our fakery. And he finds our hearts that are not contented, that are grasping and greedy. He finds hearts that are not contented, that are not godly, perhaps, that actually, you know, say they're right with God, but aren't. And he doesn't want to leave us there. He wants to rescue us and help us and help us to be right with him. The 10th commandment goes for the jugular. To covet, to want what is not ours. It's all pervasive in our society. It's it's everywhere in hearts, in minds, in lives. We have little phrases, don't we? Like the grass is always greener on the other side. You ever heard that said? You ever said it? If you've not said it, have you ever felt it? Of course, we know deep down, perhaps, that the grass is greener where you water it. But we pretend to ourselves that the grass is greener on the other side, don't we? We have other phrases like keeping up with the Joneses, don't we? And we perhaps mock other people who we see trying to do that. And we give ourselves a free pass when we're not just trying to keep up with the Joneses, but we'd really like to be a little bit better than the Joneses. Thank you very much. Isn't that within the human heart? Ah, stop pretending to be so good. It's within the human heart. It's within the human condition. No wonder we talk about it and have little phrases to try and explain it, but they can't help us. Now, I'm not denying your better moments at all. I read in the newspaper uh, this week that in a recent poll in the UK, 83% said that they would like public ownership of the water companies. 77% want to renationalize gas and electricity providers. And 76% want the railways back under state control. Half the public, and that's us as well, we're part of this apparently, even want to nationalise the banking sector. Now, I'm not raising these things because I either agree or disagree with the politics, so don't you dare start going down that avenue. 
But what's probably happening here is that people are looking at our world, the way our society is structured, and they're seeing wealthy people get more wealthy. And poor people, not so much. I was reading some statistics that talk about how the CEOs of companies earn up to 40 or 60 times the average salary within their company, let alone how many times they earn more than the person who cleans their office at the end of the day. And people look at these kinds of things, and I'm sure you do exactly the same, and you see some of the injustices, the inequalities of these things. You see uh, the powerful building what they have on the back of the little man. And no wonder people say, well, we need to do something about it. I'm not saying that these ideas are right. It's because there is some sense of justice, some sense of equality within us. It's not by accident, it's by God's design. But although many of us are in favor of an end to greed on the large scale, I would say ferreting out greed in our hearts is a much trickier task. You know, we look at our society and we say, well, if only someone would, you know, legislate. Parliament should do something. Have you ever said that? If only the MPs would. Hmm. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if it were that easy? See, nobody can legislate for your heart. The Ten Commandments speak that to us incredibly powerfully. You see, God delivered to us this incredible law that speaks as to how we're to relate to him those are the first ones and how we're to relate to people that's the second half of the ten commandments but the legislation in itself could not bring about change in the human heart it's exactly the same today if you're looking for, for governments and laws and structures and societal things to bring about the change in our world that we know perhaps there needs to be, then you'll always be looking. You might find some good decisions, but you'll also find some bad ones. You'll find things you agree with, but plenty that you don't. There needs to be something, a revolution, in fact, of the human heart. You see, the truth is, as a gentleman named Tim Keller has put it, you see, we don't really want to submit everything to justice and equality and contentedness and godliness. We'd very much like to submit the fat cats or the big corporations to these things. But he said, actually, most people, they want Jesus to be a consultant rather than a king. We'd like to take some good advice, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for these excellent Ten Commandments. I will take them under advisement. But we don't want to submit our hearts. We don't want God to really nail us for what we are and what we think and what we feel and what we do. And then for us to submit to him in response. We convince ourselves that we're not the problem. Maybe that we tell ourselves that actually we're the solution. So if only, if only people in power read my Facebook posts, they would know how to fix the world. Do you know, if, if people were only in my living room a week ago on Wednesday, we sorted it out there. We did. If only they would listen. And the truth is, we need to realize that the problem doesn't lie on the outside, it lies on the inside. And to be a Christian is to recognize that humbly. 
It is to receive the only hope and help and health that there is, that's Jesus Christ, and then to show that graciously and truthfully in our world. There was a man named uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, you'll not be surprised to learn he was Russian. And, uh, and this guy, he grew up in Russia at a really troubling time um, as Russia moved out of revolution through all sorts of ups and downs into the Soviet era. And there came a time when he was denounced, not for doing anything wrong. He didn't have to do anything wrong to be denounced in those days. But he got sent to one of the gulags, a prison camp. And, you know, he had a sense of injustice. Yeah. You know, we talk about righteous anger, don't we? And we say, you know, I'm entitled to feel hard done by. Everyone else is the problem, it's not me. But you know, he got to observing the human condition while he was there. He got to observing how good people, even in tricky circumstances, could do bad things. How greed and covetousness could really get a grip onto anybody, really. And he said this, he said, gradually I understood that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, like not between countries, nor between classes. It's not like, you know, some people are good and some people aren't. Nor between political parties either. He said the line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart. Every human heart. And covetousness is right in there, in the human heart. We have the capacity, the opportunity, the possibility of incredible good, but also devastating evil. And we really need to look at our hearts and ask ourselves really, really bluntly, what is motivating us? See, covetousness here has a few examples, and we'll look at them briefly in a moment. But I wonder if covetousness is a little bit like an onion, and we can kind of peel away the layers a little bit, and try and understand, why would I desperately want my neighbor's, I don't know, donkey or whatever it might be? Why would these kinds of desires so consume us? It does happen though, doesn't it, from a very early age. You know, you cast your mind back. Um, maybe if you receive pocket money as a kid. And the first time you got that pocket money, you were so delighted that you had that 20p, 50p, a quid. I don't know how much you guys get today. I don't really want to know, do I? Um, it's just going to distress me. Um, but you got that money and it was fantastic and you were so satisfied with it until you discovered that your elder sibling got 50p more. Yeah? Or your friend in school got another quid more. And all of a sudden, that pound in your pocket, which had seemed so much, now is not nearly enough. Because we don't just want more, we kind of want more than he's got or she's got. It's right there in our hearts. What's at the bottom of this onion? Well, before we kind of dig into the onion and open it up, and I do hope as we open up this onion, it doesn't make anyone cry. Uh, but before we do that, let's just put the skin onto the onion. What happens because of covetousness? I want to read a few verses from uh, the book of James, way, 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 way at the other end of the Bible, if you don't mind. And in James chapter 4, we find some of the, the, the horrific consequences of coveting, of wanting what is not ours or what others have. 
uh, James says this in, in chapter four of his book, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now you say, I've never murdered. Well, Jesus said, it's not just simply about murdering, it's about the heart. Have you ever hated? Oh goodness, why would you say something like that, Jesus? Why would you have a go at me like that? That's what's going on here. You desire and do not have, so you murder, or if not murder, hate. You cover and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, and I reckon we've all probably done that. You do not have, James says, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I want to remind you here that James is not primarily speaking to people who aren't Christians, but to people who are Christians. So come on, let's be quite tough with ourselves. He goes on to say, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is talking, like we've said already, that God is not happy with our inadequacy or our failing or our brokenness. He wants you to be whole and to be right. So in verse six, we get something that is so key for us. But he, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace, who to? To the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. The good news keeps on coming, doesn't it? Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here we go again. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What are the consequences of coveting, quarreling, fighting, Hatred, and not just towards other people, but even on our insides. You ever found yourself so consumed with want for something that actually you find yourself working against your better nature? It can happen. And the fighting can begin within and it can go outside just so well. Hatred of God even can be the outcome of it as we prioritize things that they can't hope to replace God, but we think that they will. And the remedy here is offered. We've said already, God gives grace. Now, who does he give grace to? Does he give grace to people like Macbeth, who was so proud and so full of his own sense of self that God really should give him what he needed or what he wanted? No. The Bible clearly here says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble to the humble and it really cuts it really cuts quite deeply to what is the root cause of our coveting we look again at this commandment all of the examples of things that we shouldn't be coveting and you know we've got houses and wives and 
servants and oxes and donkeys, and you can replace servants, oxes and donkeys with other things that are more relevant. I don't know, cars or jobs or possessions or holidays or whatever they might be. You might think it's a little strange to have wives in there. Are there any ladies who are kind of rankling a little bit about that? I think you'd be justified to do so. You think, I'm nobody's possession. <laughs> you hadn't read that before, had you? No, what have I done? Um, it's there. And it gets worse because in Exodus, you come second after houses. That can't be right. Don't worry, in the book of Deuteronomy, they restate the law and they'd obviously figured this out because they put wives in front of houses. Um, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's here because, um, no, I can't make this right. Um, what is going on? Why does the Bible say you shouldn't cover your neighbor's wife? If you were to read back in the commandments, it's already said that you uh, shall not commit adultery, just a few commandments back. Well, I would say to you that covetousness in relationships, even in marriage relationship, is not just about sexual desire. That's been addressed by this idea of adultery, but covetousness actually can go even deeper and it can be almost more corrosive. You know, husbands, do you see another man's wife and she's maybe more outgoing? more friendly, more charming in social settings and a little part of you says, oh, I wish my wife was like that. It's covetousness. It's not sexual desire, but it's coveting what is another's. Wives, do you look at another man's husband? No, another woman's husband. <laughs> Preached about that a while back. Um, do, you look, do you look at another woman's husband and you say, well, I he's so much more handy around the house or more helpful with the chores I wish my husband was like that do you look at another couple's bank balance and say I wish our bank balance was like that it's not so simple is it all of a sudden you say oh thou shalt not commit adultery tick, easy, done I don't really struggle with that, that's fine how about all these other things how about all these other things it's not a bad thing for blokes to help around the house. <laughs> Don't mishear me, gentlemen. You've not had a free pass there. But are we coveting things? It causes our hearts to grow cold towards those that we have, those that we professed love to, those that we have allied ourselves by means of an eternal vow until death do us part. That's what it is to cover. The Bible gives us some grace even here if we'll humble ourselves to hear it. In Proverbs 5 and verse 18, we're told, delight yourself in the wife of your youth. And you know, you might say, well, if my wife was like she was in our youth, then, or if my husband was like he was in our youth, then uh, the Bible's not saying that. It's not saying, you know, go back in your mind and if it ain't like that anymore, then it's okay not to be delighted. The Bible's saying your wife, your husband, they're the same person. They're the person they were. Delight yourself in everything that you did once see in them and determine to see it again. It's the Bible's excellent instruction that the one that you have loved is worth your love still. Delighting in your husband or in your wife not just tolerating them, is the best way 
to fend off the advances of covetousness, which can lead to wholesale destruction in your relationship. The Bible is so practical, so helpful, but the Bible is so blunt. And the Bible won't let any single one of us off the hook. You know, I said already, we're going to come to a table that speaks to us of grace. I tell you what, the good news is so much better news when you know the bad news of how we are without God. When we're as tough with us as we need to be, may I say, then the love of Jesus Christ comes all the sweeter, don't you think? More broadly, when we think of covetousness, it is the desire to keep on adding to our lives. Somehow that we might reach a point of satisfaction. You may have heard already of the time way, way past when uh, Mr. Rockefeller in America, I think he was the richest man in the world at that time. Somebody came to him and, and, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of dollars he had, equivalent to many, many billions, even trillions today. And they asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? Do you know what he replied? Just a little bit more. How much could he have? (laughs) But always just a bit more. Just a bit more. I don't think that his heart was somehow more broken or deceitful or covetous than any human heart, but somehow he'd been even more captivated by these things. It is never enough. Advertising tells you that you need more. You need shinier. You need additional. It's not just enough to have one, you need two. It's not enough for it to be this big. It needs to be that big. You can't have the phone that you had two years ago. You must have the new one. (laughs) Gets us, doesn't it? There must be more, there must be more, there must be more. But it's ultimately down, I would say, as we peel away the bits of the onion to a couple of two root causes, really, the kind of mother causes of sin. It's pretty much the same with every sin that you come across. Firstly, that we allow pride in our sense of self to replace dependence upon God who made us. The pride in who we are captures us. And then secondly, that we stop trusting that God will care for us and cause us to flourish. And we start believing that we can do it and do better for ourselves. Pride in the sense of self, lack of trust in a God of love. These things, if we will allow them to take root in our hearts, or better still, if we won't allow Jesus Christ to utterly cleanse us from these things, if these things get a hold, covetousness will flow from them. You'll say, I deserve more. You'll hear adverts that say that you're worth it. And you'll start to believe it. Why? Why? Playing on our sense of pride. Playing on our sense of self. That we are inherently good. That we do deserve. That we've paid our dues. That we've earned our share. And all of these things, they sound, they seem sensible, but they play upon pride. We talked about Macbeth earlier, but we could just as easily talk about the devil, couldn't we? Why don't people worship me, he said. I deserve 
And pride takes root and takes hold and comes even into our world. And Adam and Eve are told, well, you know, you, you, don't, you don't really uh, need to do what God says. You can be just like him too. Pride, a sense of self, and then a lack of trust. God didn't really say. Trust in yourself, trust in your own judgment. Trust in your own abilities. Trust in your own capacity. You need to provide for yourself. We have phrases, don't we? Things like, I need a little me time. Yeah? I understand the, the idea. Please, I appreciate that sometimes we need a bit of rest and relaxation. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying somehow when it becomes just about me and mine, it plays into these senses of self and of pride and of self-provision. It's a classic error. Jesus describes the error really well for us. In Luke chapter 12, reading from verse 13 onwards, Jesus um, is approached by somebody asking one of the very many daft questions that people ask Jesus. Does anybody ever ask you really stupid questions? And you know, you have to say, there are no stupid questions, but there really are, okay? And, uh, and, and so somebody comes to Jesus and he says, come on, Jesus, Uh, We know you're wise. Help us to divide up some inheritance. There's some money here. We all know money is very important. Fix it, Jesus. And Jesus says, tell you what, I'll fix you instead. Um, In not so many words, but he says it a bit like that. And, And he says, do you know, the substance, the essence of life is not in what you have in what you possess. There's a couple of words used in uh, the the original language of the Bible for life. And the word that's used here is a word, we use it for a name nowadays, Zoe. And it means the essence of life. Yeah? Not the length of your life or not not talking so much about things that we think are quality of life, but really, when you get down to it, what is life? And Jesus says, it ain't about what you have. Not one little bit of it. It's not about having more holidays or more experiences or a bigger house or a faster car or having a better husband or a better wife or better kids, dare I say it, or dare I say this, better parents. No, it's not about any of these things. You wouldn't dream of thinking that way, would you? I know. It's not in what you have or what you can get. He tells a parable about a man. The harvest goes ever so well. And he says to himself, do you know, life's brilliant I've got plenty and you know I earned it it's because of how clever and how hard working I am it's got nothing to do with the rain and the sun I'm going to build myself some bigger barns and I'm going to put this away and then I'll be fine for the future I've got all my insurance policies I don't need to depend on anybody and he doesn't say it but maybe in his heart he whispers it I don't even need to depend upon God and the word comes to such a man saying you fool told you the bible was blunt don't you know that this very night your life will be demanded from you and jesus is making so plain to us it ain't in what you have that your life depends the psalmist many many years before said whom have i in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that i desire but you you know i heard those words this week and i thought I could read them, but I don't think I can say them because I'd be a liar. 
whom have I in heaven but you, O God? Well, it sounds so easy so far, because who else could we have in heaven? There is nothing on earth that I desire but you. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness, God. Why would you put that in the Bible? It's too hard. And again, James speaks to us and he says, here comes grace. If you'll humble yourself, be tough with yourself, and say, God, I need you. I need you so that you can rightly order my heart. I need you so that you'll deal with the sense of pride in who I am, my own self. I need you because I trust in myself far too often. I need to trust in you. I need you. For all of these reasons and more, I need you, God, because I am not content and sometimes I'm not even godly. I need you, God. Then he will give you grace and he will lift you up. I tell you what, there's some contentedness, isn't there? Perhaps if those who are helping with the communion and serving us in music could come. I want to tell you a story. We have said already that the heart's deceitful. There's all sorts of stuff going on on the inside that perhaps we don't recognize as we ought. I heard a story this week of a young minister in a church and he, he went to the church and he was getting used to the people in his new town and uh, one of the very first tasks that he had to perform as a minister was he had to conduct a funeral service for a lady in the town. And he got to know the shopkeeper a little bit, the guy who had the general store in the town. And, um, and he went to this gentleman. He said, I can't believe I've got to do this funeral. You know the lady in question. Nobody ever says a good word about her. And now I've got to do this funeral and nobody even likes her. And they got to talking and they, you know, the, the, the minister had heard rumours and you see this lady, her husband worked away and, uh, and so she used to take in lodgers who came to work in the town and, uh, and, and you know, the people said, oh, she's just greedy, she just wants loads of more money, she's got so much wealth and people even got to saying, well, maybe she takes in lodgers for other reasons as well, you know, what with her husband being away, you know how people can talk and... They started to say things like this about this woman. And the shopkeeper listened to the minister carping on and complaining about having to take such a, a funeral. And the shopkeeper, after a while, he couldn't really take any more of it, and he silently went and got his ledger. It was old times. He used to write stuff down. And he got his ledger from behind the, uh, the counter, and he brought it up, and he, he placed it out, and he turned it around. And he showed this minister a list of numbers. It was outstanding amounts. People in the town, it wasn't a wealthy town, it was a tough time. And people oftentimes couldn't pay for their groceries, at least not up front. And, and so the shopkeeper would kindly put it on credit until they could uh, come to pay it. But what he would show is asterisks against some of these numbers as they had been scored out of the book. And the shopkeeper said to this minister, you know, I, I know this lady... And I know nobody's ever had a kind word to say about her. And, you know, I was sworn to secrecy, so I couldn't say this kind word before. But now she's passed, I'm going to tell you. Every single one of those numbers with the asterisk that has been scored out, she came with the money that she earned from taking in the lodges and she paid off 
the debts of pretty much everybody in this town. One by one by one. I wonder today if her example might make real something of what we've been looking at. You see, we assume and we presume and we look at the human hearts of others and we're very quick to judge, but we don't look at the human heart beats within us. You know, people said she was just accumulating. She was just grasping. She just wanted more. Truth was, she was the reason that town held together. Giving and giving and giving. I wonder as we come around this table and we remember Jesus the Christ who gave even his own life for us that we might allow our lives to be turned on their heads. Have we come here today this morning resenting the fact that we don't have what we feel is our due? Then at this table of remembrance can we be reminded of what we've received even though we could not possibly earn it? Might we be prompted into generosity? If we've come this morning with a sense of pride in ourselves, maybe injured by our circumstances, might this morning we be reminded that we cannot possibly have nor be anybody except by the grace of God? If we've come proud, might we go humble? If we've come grasping, might we go generous? If we've come thinking that we know the answer, might we go actually telling others of the one who is the answer? Say, what on earth has the Ten Commandments got to do with my life? Well, God sees our hearts and he skewers us. But he does so because he loves us. And he wants us to be made new. I wonder, would you believe a better word as you go from this place today? Your life, the essence of your life, is not about what you accumulate in the here and now. God has made you for more. And the bread will come. And as it does, please take and eat. Be reminded of the body of Jesus Christ, which was broken for you. That he gave everything for you. And as the cup follows, please take the cup and hold the cup. We'll drink together shortly. And as we do so, we're reminded that we're in this together. There is no sense of self for the Christian that dominates. Rather, we recognize that we are the family of God. with the body of Christ and he is our head. And I wonder, might we pray? pray that God would give you the grace that you need to be the person of generosity that he's called you to be it's true humility and that's all God asks of you throw away your pride be humble before God let him lift you up, he knows what you need he knows far better than we do